Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. all you herstory fans and welcome back to another episode of whining about herstory the women's history podcast where two longtime gal pals drink a bunch of wine get a little weird and talk about a lot of herstory that you probably haven't heard of i'm kelly i'm emily and if i sound a little bit different that is because kelly and i are recording remotely today i stayed homesick because I felt like crap, my back was killing me, and I just didn't sleep last night. So I'm just going to keep resting. Um, But with it being Women's History Month, I really didn't feel like I should just completely fuck off. So I am sitting here in my office with my two dogs and my cat, who is already very upset that I'm not devoting my entire attention to him. Yes. And I'm, yeah, just, I'm, I'm sipping on water. I'm just, it's Same. been a day. Yeah, I had like one meeting today and I was like, oh, thank God. Super yeah. easy, super nice. Like, don't have to cancel because I wasn't feeling the best either. So I was like, oh, I don't have to cancel on anyone. And then Emily was like, do you want to do it remote? And I was like, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm so I, I think we were both very excited to be able to stay in our sweats and like not have to, even though you don't go anywhere. It's it's different. It's like, oh, I just get to sit here and then I get to turn you off and then you're not here anymore. Right. I don't have to do the min- like 20 minute Minnesota goodbye. Not that I usually mind it, but yeah, I, I think we're both feeling a little low energy. We are also feeling terribly anxious because uh, if you're not following us on social media, you may, may not have heard, but we are going to be performing live. This is our first I guess you could call it a live show at our local history center uh, for their Women's History Month closing brunch. And we're going to cover a couple of local women who actually knew each other and were a part of each other's stories. Um, It's going to be a little different. It's going to be family friendly. There's no wine. There's no swearing. It's two women in one hour. So it's like highlights, not full stories. I, I have my notes. And I'm already like, cut it, cut it, cut it. Mm-hmm. Get that out of here. No one cares. <laughs> like, uh, it's so I'm I'm very stressed. I'm encouraging all my friends to go to join me in the grand public panic attack I'll be having. But I'm Same. I'm excited. You're gonna be so um, much calmer than like nauseous. I am, and we'll both be calm externally because we're both hundred oh, really percent. Yeah, I know. I told Justin. Justin's like, oh, like it's a brunch. Like, are you gonna eat? And I'm like, no, because if I eat beforehand, I will throw up. And or no burp. one wants that. In the middle of it, you know, like <laughs> I burp enough during our recordings, but that's fine. It's just us. We're not performing live. Um, I know I told Justin, I'm like, I'm going to find you in the crowd and I'm just going to like stare you down. So then it's like I'm talking to you <laughs> and not a room full of people. I want I want a video of just Justin through our performance because I feel like the intensity of you staring at him, he's just gonna slowly shrink down because he won't be able to handle yeah. <laughs> that kind of un undivided attention. You're like why? <laughs> but yeah, we're we're very excited. So if you're in the local area, <laughs> come on for, by for for our friends. Yeah, come on by. Uh, it's just. 
the the ticket to admission to the history center the history center is a really wonderful place uh we really are, are thrilled to support them we're very thrilled to be supported by them and we're really excited and my my friend said she was bringing her daughter q and And my sister asked if it was family friendly because she wanted to bring Madeline and I was like yeah of course it's family friendly like come on down should bring Madeline I I actually do a lot better with kids than adults so we know who Emily will be staring down children yeah yeah it's just gonna be all the kids like hi there what's your favorite color no but um I, I I'm excited I think it'll be I think it'll be good and we're dragging our significant others you know they have to. It's their yeah. obligation. Well, and maybe we'll do like a full, you know, maybe we'll do an, like, we're going to record the live show. So you'll, you'll still get to hear that, but maybe, you know, we'll do like a extended version of it sometime too. Yeah, I would, I would like that, but we are going to record the audio for that. It'll probably obviously sound a little different, but we are going to release that as a normal episode. Yeah. So it'll, it will be different, but I think it'll still be funny. You know, we we can be we can be funny when we're sober. Oh, there's gonna be so not many swearing. Puns. It's gonna be so bad. <laughs> you may have never heard it, but <laughs> it'll be fun. It it'll be a good time. We won't have little Australian children screaming at us. They said a bad word. They said a bad word. <laughs> Let's hope not. That is still some of my favorite merch. Seriously, if you've got if you've got kids, get them a little they said a bad word t-shirt. Yeah, it's pretty if You're cute. immediately just the coolest parent in the room. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I we do have a say their name this week on a bit of a downer note. Um, two two weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago. Um within no, within this last week. Well, I was going to say two weeks ago we had oh, her on our show. Sorry. Let me just, like, let you say your thing. No. You just just keep going, Emily. It's fine. No, Kelly, let me friend-splain you on how to do our say their name. Sorry, I just, I, like, this is, a this is like, a really upsetting thing. So, obviously, I don't want to, like, I'm like, no, let's, let's, let's not get the facts get right. Um, so, we had um, Caitlin from... The, the owner of a tour of her own or, or co-founder. And um, it, it's sad to say that just, yeah, this last week, I think it was Monday morning, um, her apartment burned down and she lost both of her pets. She's fine. She's safe. She has some place to go. Um, but there is a GoFundMe on our social media to, you know, not replace what was lost because that's never going to happen, but to help her get back on her feet. And yeah. Yeah. So Caitlin, um, her, she lost everything in her apartment, all of her worldly possessions. Um, she lost her two cats, uh, which is terrible. I I, I, I can't imagine everything is terrible. And then like to compound that by also losing your like loving animals, it's it's devastating. It it's my nightmare, and it it couldn't have happened to just it, it couldn't have happened to a nicer person. Yeah. And Caitlin has been so wonderful in supporting the women's history podcast community, the community in D.C. Women run businesses in D.C. Yeah. She has just been working so hard to tell everyone's stories and build them up and 
now it's our opportunity to return the favor and support her. So uh, both Kelly and I have already donated. Yep. Uh, we encourage all of you to donate because this is it, it's it's a freak accident. It's everyone's worst nightmare having to pick up the pieces from literally nothing. And yeah, so please, we've we posted the GoFundMe links on our Facebook and Instagram. They're sponsored by uh distract dc or yeah mm-hmm. um so the, they they were set up by someone else but we're just signal boosting that yeah please please go donate yeah they're she deserves far more than that and far more than any of us can give her but you know yeah it's that rally behind her because she definitely needs it yeah just you know we something that's been wonderful about doing this podcast is the community that we've been able to cultivate in the community we found with our listeners and other podcasters and authors and other people in the herstory space. And this, this is it. Like, this is the moment for all of that to really come to fruition and for everyone to mobilize and help someone out who really needs it. Yeah. Yeah. So please go to our Facebook uh, or Instagram to find the GoFundMe link and donate whatever you can. Anything helps. Well, on that note, it's Women's know, it's History like- Month too. <laughs> like, God, like this just the whole thing, the whole like I read about it and I started crying. Oh, yeah. I, it was, I was just heartbroken. devastating. And I was I was hugging my pets really closely, and naturally Arthur started scratching my face. And, and like, I'm like, it's care. okay, buddy. You. I'm like, it's okay. You can do whatever you want. Um, yeah. Uh, but on that note, we are going to talk talk about our stories. And because we have just celebrated our four-year anniversary. We're finally going to actually record the episode we meant to record for that anniversary, but we did two interviews instead. You know what? You're you're saying that like we're behind on the ball and really it's just we were so ambitious and we were so ahead of the game that our regularly scheduled programming was what got delayed because we were being so extra. I think everyone will love us anyways. It's fine. No, no. The hashtag no, history. No, they're not going to love us anyways, guest. Emily. Caitlin, fantastic guest. Love, love working with all of them. But yeah, so we are going to follow our tradition and whine about Minnesota gals. Minnesota gals were dressed in flannel. Someone actually made a version of that. I know. I know when that song first came out, it's my favorite thing. Yeah, I really do love it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's, it, so it's true. true. Um, who's, am I going you? first? Yeah, we talked about this. Okay. Okay, so my woman, I was kind of hoping she'd have more of a direct connection with Minnesota so I can name drop all these places we've been to, Um, but I was too far into the notes to like start over, but she is a Minnesota gal, uh, and she's definitely someone who deserves more of our attention as Minnesotans. So today I'm whining about Marie Louise Botneau Baldwin. There's a little French in here, so everyone's going to have to, you know, forgive me and bear with that. So Marie Louise Botneau Baldwin was born on December 14th, 1863 in the Ojibwe Nation, which is present day uh, Pembina, North Dakota. 
and she was part of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. And she was one of three girls born to Jean Bottenot and Marguerite Renville. Oh. I'm making that like really French. accent heavy. I, I'm <laughs> for us going with it. Um, tragically, one of her sisters did die in infancy. Unfortunately, that was not the most uncommon thing in the 1800s. Uh, and Marie had quite the family legacy to live up to her Mm. paternal grandfather pierre botineau was an ojibwe explorer of mixed dakota ojibwe and french canadian heritage and he was also the nephew of the pembino ojibwe chief red bear okay so he's a big deal yeah and pierre is actually recognized as a notable minnesotan and north dakota frontiersman don't you know having surveyed and helped to found cities around both states including and of course i'm only listing the minnesota ones Mm -hmm. osseo where my osseo folks at maple grove and Breckenridge, Minnesota. And apparently Maple Grove has a mall that has a little zoo in it where you can pet gap- capybaras. What? Yes. My friend like just went there. I've been to Maple there. Grove, but I've never... Their mall has a... We need to go to Maple Grove. I, I know. I know. Pierre did that. Pierre brought capybaras <sighs> to Minnesota. <laughs> Maybe not, but it, it that's his legacy. That's his legacy. It's fine. So his 1854 home is still preserved in Maple Grove, Minnesota. And if that wasn't enough reason to visit. Oh, I do talk about the zoo. Oh, with the capybaras. Yep. Sorry. I didn't think I put that in there. So Botno Boulevard in Hennepin County is named after him. And a proposed light rail extension Hmm. in Minneapolis would be named Botno after him. But maybe it should be named after a different Botno. Just saying. We'll see. So Marie's father, Jean Bottineau, the second of Pierre's nine children. I don't know where he had the time to father nine children, but good God. He grew up to become a lawyer and an advocate for the rights of the Ojibwe nation in Minnesota and North Dakota. So her grandfather is a big deal. Her father is a big deal. And now here's Marie, who's like, all right, what am I going to do next? Yeah. So Marie's mix of French and indigenous heritage made her Matisse, uh, something she was very proud of. And we discussed the Matisse people when I covered uh, Frontiers Woman's Sophie Morjo back in episode 68. But it's been a hot minute. So let's have a refresher. And I feel like our Canadian listeners are very familiar with this because when I was talking with my Canadian friend, she was throwing the word like Matisse around like. She'd been doing it her whole life. And I'm like, oh, this, that that's a thing that you're familiar with. We're just, we're still trying to figure out, oh, no, you don't call them Indians. You say Native Americans or indigenous people. <laughs> like, yeah. we're a little behind the curve in the United States. So the Matisse people are descended from indigenous tribes, often Ojibwe, Creek, or Algonquin, and European colonists, you know, French, English and or Scottish, and they were known to the French as Métis, which is like the French word for mixture, but they've established themselves as their own peoples and have their own flag and culture, and like they're their own subsect. It's not just like, oh, well, you're you're mixed race. It's no, we're our own nation and tribe, and we have our own cultural identity. And Marie was very proud of her heritage and referred to herself as a French Chippewa. Now, 
I bet you're wondering why she used the term Chippewa instead of Ojibwe, as I have been using throughout this story. All of these notes were a great learning experience for me because there were so many questions I had where I'm like, I need to look this up now. Well, I also want to know, and I learned something. So according to the National Endowment of the, of the Humanities, Ojibwe and Chippewa are versions of the same word, but pronounced differently in Canada and the U.S. So the French Canadians would pronounce the nation with an O in front of it, making it Ojibwe. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the French are just extra. They, they throw a bunch of letters together and they make a sound and the letters and the sounds don't correspond, but we call it a language. It's fine. Um, so they say Ojibwe, while those in the United States say Chippewa, uh, both are correct. And what you use typically depends on the geography of the specific people you're talking about. So I stick with Ojibwe throughout the story, unless something is specifically referred to as Chippewa. But they're the same nation. It's just a regional difference. So Marie and her family moved to Minnesota, living in Minneapolis. What's up? Cherry on a spoon. (laughs) If is is okay, that's in Minneapolis, right? That's not in St. Paul. Mm, uh, Yeah, I think it's at the Minneapolis Art Museum. Yeah, okay, thank God, because I'm like, I just pissed off everyone living in the Twin Cities. Marie attended public schools in Minneapolis and then later St. Joseph's Academy, a Catholic girls' school in St. Paul. And you can actually still see the school building uh, as it's been placed on the U.S. National Register of Historic Places. And this means Marie joins the prestigious ranks of Catholic school survivors. Or just parochial school survivors. So Marie followed in her father's footsteps. After attending St. John's Ladies College in Winnipeg, Canada, she returned to Minneapolis to work as a clerk in her father's law office. And many of the cases she and her father worked on are on behalf of the Ojibwe people in Minnesota and North Dakota. As like I mentioned, he was an advocate. She's going to work at his law office and she's helping him with all these cases in this advocacy. So her father, as an advocate for the Ojibwe Nation, instilled the values of hard work and fighting for justice in Marie. And working in the firm with him gave her the experience and legal intricacies and issues that challenged the Ojibwe people. Because to say that the history of treaties and legality and nation status and all of that between the different indigenous tribes in the United States and the U.S. government are complicated is the understatement of the century. I I feel like it would just take me decades to try to untangle the many fucked up threads that are these like, ah, it's a mess. It's a huge mess. So the two would eventually move to Washington, D.C. in the 1890s to defend the treaty rights of the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Nation from the federal government. Because like I said, the U.S. government and indigenous tribes, there's a lot of heated uh, debate with treaties and particularly with the U.S. not keeping those treaties. You know? Yeah. So I was trying to find more information about what the dispute was on the treaty rights in particular and what was at risk, but I couldn't. Um, 
as I said, there have been a long history of treaties being established between the U.S. federal government and indigenous tribes only to be broken or even treaties that were used by the federal government as a tool for displacing people from their tribal land. So like the U.S. government forcing tribes to sign a treaty that was to the tribe's detriment because it's like, well, you sign this treaty or we wipe you out. You get to choose. Infamously, in 1831, President Andrew Jackson ignored a Supreme Court ruling which established Indian tribes as sovereign nations and forced the Cherokee people to leave Georgia on what would become the infamous Trail of Tears, a mass forced migration during which 15 to 16,000 Cherokee people died. Just so God, that's terrible. That's just like one example. I know. One example so many in bad. which yeah. tens of thousands of people died. That's just one of them. So just 60 years later, Maria and her father, Jean and others were still fighting for the federal. Go- we're still fighting for the federal government to honor treaties that established their tribe's rights. Through this fight, Marie was introduced to a thriving community of indigenous professionals who lived and worked in the capital. This gave her the opportunity to connect with other advocates and make strong connections in the community. And through her work on fighting for treaty rights and working with other advocates, Marie began making a name for herself. Like she, she shows up and she's like, okay, I'm here. And everyone's like, damn Marie, you came out of nowhere and you're just like blowing up our spot and we're loving it. Yeah. So in 1904, Congress and the Ojibwe advocates came to a settlement. I don't know what that settlement was or what it was about. Uh, But that same year, President Theodore Roosevelt, who had noticed Marie's advocacy work, appointed her as a clerk in the Office of Indian Affairs, where she oversaw government contracts with the Indian reservations. And she would work with the Office of Indian Affairs until 1932. So for nearly 30 years. That's, that's ins- a that's like that's a an good career. Yeah, that's a good career. Jesus. Um, and obviously that's not even the only thing she's doing. Um, and she's really, I get the impression she's trying to like make change from the inside of the institution, because even though this was the office of Indian affairs, Marie was one of only two indigenous employees in the washington office the office of indian affairs only employed two two indigenous people in their entire washington office how the fuck does that how does that make sense it doesn't and it's stupid god yeah no it's it's the office of uh the federal government telling indigenous people what they have to do anyway uh, it was also worth noting that when, when Marie was hired, it was uh, at $900 a year, which would be raised to $1,000 a year, which made her the agency's highest paid indigenous woman. However, because this is women's history, she was still paid less compared to the other clerks who made approximately 1800 a year. Jesus. Sexism Yay. and racism intersect. The Office of Indian Affairs was problematic in its own right. They pushed the assimilation of indigenous people into European culture, and they expected their indigenous employees to serve as examples of successful assimilation. 
So it was the policy of assimilation that led to the infamous Indian schools across the United States, which toted the mission statement, quote, kill the Indian, save the man. So the whole point of these Indian schools in the United States and then the like the um, how were they the public schools or the reservation schools, Uh, but Canada had the same kind of model the whole point was to take their heritage away yeah take take indigenous people's heritage away force them to conform to european culture and still treat them like shit also keep them subservient yeah it's like oh you're not gonna learn to be a doctor here you're gonna learn to like serve me tea so it was all about the continued subjugation, but also, uh, but I don't want you to be like too different. I want you to be beneath me, but not like different. It's, it's really, it's really hideous. And in these schools, indigenous children were forced to conform to European standards of appearance and culture, being forced to abandon their culture and their language. And I go into detail about the Indian schools when I covered Zikala Shah, also known as Gertrude Bonin, way back in episode 39. That's a blast yeah, from the past. That's super far back. So I'm not. Sorry, my dogs are also very upset about the plight of the indigenous people in this country. I, mean, I would be. Um, but I'm not trying to gloss over that. I do go into more detail in that episode. And I highly recommend everyone listen to it. Um, also, just consuming information about Indian schools and their really tragic, horrific legacy. It's something that none of us were taught in school. And we all should have been. So this is why it was so incredible that for her federal ID photo as an employee of the OIA or the Office of Indian Affairs, Marie wore a traditional Ojibwe dress and braided hair. So while the OIA didn't make an issue of this, it was common for journalists to use this photo paired with a photo of her in European clothes to be like, yeah, this is actually the same person, believe it or not. Like they had to, they, they couldn't yeah, just use they, the federal ID photo. They had to be like, okay, but she also looks like this sometimes. Like it's, it was, it was so weird, but that was a really huge act of rebellion for her. I bet. Like, I can't even imagine like the amount of courage. Yeah. Cause it's not just, you could be losing your job over this. Right. Because you're ba- you're going against what the whole organization is trying to establish, which is assimilation and toting their indigenous employees as successful examples of that right and she's like bitch here's my heritage she's like i am who i am and i'm not gonna let you tell me what to do or how to dress and she did dress in european clothes very often but that was her choice and this was this was like a very decided act of rebellion and it's so incredible So in addition to her work at the OIA, Marie joined the newly founded Society of American Indians, or SAI, lots of acronyms, in 1911, serving on their executive council. The SAI was the first National American Indian Rights Organization run by and for American Indians. Unlike the Office of Indian Affairs, which is like 99% white people, and like a handful of indigenous people just to say they're not like completely racist. Right. Like this is by indigenous people for indigenous people. Which is so sad that like, oh my God, the government's or agency is a piece of shit. 
that is trying to change us and assimilate us. We need our own agency to work with. So like we just mentioned, uh, okay, sorry. I, I get on my own like train of thought and then I forget that I wrote all these things that I'm thinking down. So unlike the OIA, which was all about assimilation, the SAI promoted pan-Indianism, which was a movement that focused on unity amongst indigenous people across tribes, because these are all very different tribes and nations with different geographies, different cultures, very rich histories of cooperation and conflict. And they're kind of in this position now where it's like, we all need to kind of band together and protect each other as if we're one. Because the U.S. government is treating as if we're all literally the same people anyway. And we need to we need to support each other because if they're coming after you, they're coming after us. So it's this very it's this like strong sense of unity, which I thought was really cool. Some other notable members of the SAI were Zikala Shah, who I just mentioned, along with Francis and Rosa Lafleche, the half brother and half sister of Susan Lafleche Picot, a revolutionary doctor who Kelly covered in episode one hundred and six. Yay! She's a bad bitch, and we love her. So Marie knew and worked with all of these people, and I'm digging this Hersey crossover energy, and I love all these callbacks to our previous episodes because it's really. It really shows how all this history intersects with each other, you know? So the same year that she joined the SAI, Marie's father, Jean, died. This took a huge toll on Marie, but also invigorated her passion for advocacy. She would give speeches to promote the SAI, their work, and advocate for Native identity, gaining a reputation as the spokesperson for modern Indigenous women. Because it's like, I... I I don't have to look or act one way or the other. I don't have to, you know, I can embrace and love my heritage while still also accepting some of these European standards and still be me. But I'm not going to let anyone tell me who I am and what I want, what I'm supposed to be. I'm just going to be me. And that that's what it is now to be a modern indigenous woman. And because apparently she didn't have enough on her plate, Marie decided to take the next step in her education, enrolling in the Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C. in 1912. Marie was smart as a whip and completed what would be what was to be a three year course in only two years. She completed law school in two years, becoming the first indigenous person and the first woman of color to earn a degree from Washington College. That's awesome. Just her little side project. Right. And at this point in the story, she's 49 years old. Like she has a life. She has a career. She has a has a direction. And she's like, but I could do more if I had a law degree. So at almost 50 years old, I'm going to go back to school and get my law degree. You're never too old. Along with her involvement in the Indian rights movement, Marie was active in the women's rights movement because she's intersectional AF. In fact, when she graduated from Washington College, a journalist asked her if she considered herself a suffragist, which just reminds me of people being like, do you consider yourself a feminist? It's like, why wouldn't I? It means I believe in equality regardless of sex and gender. Who does? Who's not on board for that? But right? it's like to be a suffragist, it was a dirty word, just like feminist can be used as a dirty word. Mm hmm. So 
she's asked this question. Marie reportedly laughed because she's a bad bitch and said, did you ever know that the Indian women were among the first suffragists and that they exercised the right of recall? She's like, bitch, we have been in the political mix since the dawn of time. And you're asking me if I am a suffragist. Shut up. (laughs) Right. Like, come on. She worked with notable suffragists of the time, interviewed in newspapers covering the suffrage movement, uh, and advocated for the leadership roles of women in Native society. She marched in the 1913 suffrage parade organized by notable suffragist Alice Paul. And this is actually the parade that Kelly's tea towel comes from. So you may have seen it in the background of some of our photos and videos. I gave Kelly this tea towel for Christmas one year, and it shows a woman riding a white horse. And it says like the 1913 women's suffrage parade. That poster that was used for that design is from this fucking parade. Nice. That's great. These connections her story everywhere. is everything and it is everywhere. <laughs> we cannot escape it. So the parade, per, bleh, excuse me, the parade preceded Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, taking the same route that he would the next day and was composed of thousands of women. Their goal was to advocate for women's suffrage, the Susan B. Anthony Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which would have guaranteed equal rights regardless of sex, and to urge incoming and to urge the incoming president to make women's rights a priority. And this also kind of reminds me of the Women's March. Um, I think it was I, I can't I think it was right after Trump was inaugurated. Okay. I can't remember if it was right before or right after now. I think it was right before. Right before. Okay. But yeah, it was kind of this like, hey, we're here and we're not going to let you forget us. And in particular in Trump's case, because he has a long history of being a misogynist, it's like, we have your number and we are not going down quietly. Right. But yeah, like this, the history repeating itself, it's incredible. So Marie was asked to make a float for the parade that represented indigenous women and the parade organizers asked her to make it one that was quote unquote, a mythical tribute. So I don't know entirely what they were looking for when they said mythical tribute. Um, I think they were just kind of looking for her to be the representative of all indigenous women. Probably. Um, and and here's the thing. We've talked about this before. The women's suffrage movement was racist. It dealt with a lot of racism. And even after the 19th Amendment was passed, Asian women could not vote. Indigenous women could not vote. Black women were still barred from voting through a variety of racist shenanigans like this was this was an issue. But instead, Marie simply marched in the parade as a modern indigenous woman and integrating herself with the women around her and this makes sense because while she was a strong advocate for indigenous rights she also believed that unity and cooperation were the keys to success she's like we're all in this together we're all the same and we all deserve the same rights that we're fighting for right and i'm not going to make a float that's like a token You know, and here's the thing. If she decided, yes, this float is the way that I want to convey my message. 
great but she's like mm, right she's like no, telling you- me to do this for your purposes and your agenda that's not what I'm about right exactly. I'm not gonna serve you in that way and deny who I am and my feelings which I really I really admire so this is a great place to go into Marie's sense of identity and her views on the roles of indigenous women in a society that was becoming increasingly Europeanized So while Marie was very proud of her Métis heritage, she did struggle with her sense of identity, and it's not hard to see why. The culture of her tribe being taken away while the federal government and European settlers are demanding nothing less than assimilation into European culture at the expense of all indigenous roots. So she has these two very strong forces pulling against her, and they're pulling her into completely opposite directions. This conflict led to Marie's sense of identity and her views on the best way for Indigenous peoples to survive to fluctuate throughout her life, which is called growing up. Right. Like, that <laughs> like sounds this about is right. This is a very natural thing. Early on, she did actually support assimilation, though assimilation would require abandonment of her heritage. It seemed like the path of least resistance, which I can understand her feeling that way. Like we need to survive. And if this is our best chance of survival, let's do it. However, as she did embrace her heritage and her identity as an indigenous woman, she leaned away from assimilation. While attending Washington University, Marie had to walk a thin, thin line between being herself and embracing her heritage while also appealing to European sensibilities in order to earn respect and to be heard by her peers while also working to dispel stereotypes of indigenous women as being hypersexual and uncivilized. So not only is she trying to find herself, she's in an environment in which she is under the microscope. She is the representative to her peers for all indigenous women. Whether she likes it or not, that's just the situation that she's in. And so it's like, how do you explore your identity? How do you explore how you want to express yourself when there's all this pressure on you? Marie would learn to use both her indigenous heritage and her acumen in mainstream European culture to further her advocacy work. The media was fascinated by Marie when she was dressed in traditional Ojibwe attire. She would use this to garner more attention during public appearances and promote equality for women and indigenous peoples. So she eventually she's able to find this happy medium and not only find herself and how in like who she wants to be, but also she's able to weaponize that for her for her politics. Uh, at this point, Marie is a force to be reckoned with. She is a real world. She has real world experience in advocacy, law office work, a degree in law that she earned in only two fucking years. Good God. Connections in Washington, D.C. was a prominent figure in the Indian rights and women's rights movements and a savvy AF political influencer. In 1914, Marie joined a delegation that spoke with Woodrow Wilson, challenging the wardship status of indigenous tribes and advocating for suffrage. So, again, this episode was a huge learning experience for me. So I'm going to drag you all along that path with me. 
As a very, very, very brief explanation of what wardship meant to indigenous tribes, it basically framed them as being dependent and irresponsible, while white citizens were considered independent and responsible, literally being called first-class citizens. No, no, we're not even trying to hide this. We're just like so overtly racist. This view led this led to yeah no it's it's so gross. So this view led to state officials equating wardship with welfare, and they work to prevent indigenous people from accessing welfare benefits. So like not only are they forcing indigenous people into shitty situations onto reservations, then they're also denying them the assistance that the government has like forced them to need because of their own stereotype that oh well these people are uncivilized. And they're just, they just want us to take care of them because that's what they need. It's like, no, they were doing just fine before y'all rolled up and fucked up their world. Like, stop fucking shit up. Yep. Indigenous organizations advocate against these harmful stereotypes of dependency and needing the federal government to essentially act as a guardian over them. After this meeting, Marie attended a banquet at the White House where she delivered a speech titled What an Indian Woman Has to Say for Her Race. And unfortunately, there is no surviving transcript of this speech. Which That's pisses me off. Yeah. Like she's she's doing this stuff and it's not that long ago. And I couldn't find a lot of quotes from her, even though she's giving all these speeches and the interviews and stuff. So though Marie and other advocates worked tirelessly, that doesn't mean they always agreed. In 1915, Marie was elected treasurer of the Society of American Indians, but began to feel isolated from the other members. There was a lot of growing tension around Marie's role in the Office of Indian Affairs, and even Zikala Shaw questioned her loyalties as an employee of a federal service. Again, please listen to episode 39 because it further explores the trauma of the Indian schools and how Zikalashaw in particular was traumatized by them. So the distrust and tension isn't surprising because even the Office of Indian Affairs, they're all about assimilation. And even though I think Marie has the best of intentions, it was hard for other people who had been victimized and traumatized by the federal government to trust her having a role in the federal government. So the tension finally reached its breaking point in 1919 when Marie not only resigned from the SAI, but withdrew from public advocacy completely. Unfortunately, I couldn't find much else on her life until 1940 when she moved to Los Angeles, California, where she would remain until her death in 1952 of a stroke. She is buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park. And I mean, you know, at this point, she she is an older woman. But still, 1919, she withdraws from advocacy and lives another, like, 40-some years. Jesus. And we don't hear from her. Yeah, she just disappears. And I I think that's really a shame because I have a hard time believing she wasn't doing anything. But also, I would love to know more about what led to such a significant withdrawal. So, Legacy. Washington College of Law Student Organization established a Marie Bottineau Baldwin scholarship in her honor. In 2020, during the celebration of 100 years of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave some women the right to vote, the academic journal Minnesota History 
published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press, called for greater recognition of Marie and other Indigenous suffragists. And though Marie's most notable advocacy work took place in Washington, D.C., she is still recognized as a notable woman from Minnesota's history. Much of her early work did take place in the Twin Cities area where she was working with her father at his law firm. And Minnesota's history is not always a pretty one. We rank as one of the worst states in the nation for racial housing, employment, and education disparities. And this is insane, considering that we are also ranked as one of the best educated states in the nation, with 43% of Minnesota residents between 25 and 34 years old having a bachelor's degree. So, like, we're we're some of the we're one of the best educated states, but we also have one of the most significant racial education disparities. A survey conducted in 2021 found that only 30% of BIPOC adults that feel that students from their racial or ethnic background have the same opportunities afforded to white students in K through 12 public schools. And it wasn't that long ago that diversity in Minnesota meant white Catholic. Oh, you're not, you're not Lutheran or Protestant. You're Catholic. Oh God. There goes the neighborhood. Oh, no. And of course, most recently, Minnesota was the spotlight for the brutal murders of Philando Castile and George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. Among the disheartening statistics and the dreadful reality they reflect, Minnesota is also full of tireless, passionate and determined activists and allies working to make our state a better, more welcoming and equitable place. Marie is only one of many women who have and are working to make our state and nation a better place for all. And I know we are both very proud to include her as part of our state's history. Yeah. Hell yeah. And that is the story of Marie Louise Botano Baldwin. That's a name. The Botano that we should all actually know about because holy shit. (laughs) The Botano that you should know. The bot to know that you should know. I love that. Yeah, sorry. That was a, that was a bit of a long one, but there was so much. There, I mean, I mean, there's so much, much intertangled about, into it. There's so much about indigenous history and politics in the United States that we are just. It's it's completely foreign to us because we don't even have a basic concept from our public education. So I wanted to do that justice and get into some of those uh, those nuances as best as I could in seven pages. It's one of your, usually you're the one with the shorter stories, and I'm the one with the longer stories. So it's nice, I thought this nice was going to be change short. of pace. I thought this was going to be a short story, and it was not. <laughs> but it was it was it was really cool, and I love learning about Marie. And every time I see. Botano reference somewhere in Minnesota. I'm going to be like, that's not about you, Pierre. That's about Marie. She's a bad bitch and she deserves our cheers. Three cheers for the Botano you should know. The Botano you should know. I love that. I love it so much. You're welcome. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. 
BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. So Kelly, who are you whining about today? For a second, I thought Who's you were going to go- Minnesota maiden? I thought you were going to go like into our outro and I was like, okay, sure, we can skip. Thank you so much. <laughs> My story was so long. We just need to stop. <laughs> We're not even at an hour yet. Ooh, we're being surprisingly efficient. Just you. Just me. It's fine. I have a shorter story, so I will also be efficient. Awesome. I'm I'm really I love when we do our Minnesota stories because then I feel a lot more educated about my state. Cause I I I feel like you're trans. I learned I learned about some Illinois history growing up in Illinois. Uh, I miss that whole part of grade school growing up in Minnesota where they're like, here's our state bird. Here's our flower. It's the loon. It's the loon and the lady slipper. The loon and the lady slipper. Can that be our girl band name? The loon and the lady slippers? Yes. I oh, my it. God. I want that band t-shirt. <laughs> I will. Okay. I will I'm going to work on making one, that. Yeah. I'm going to work on making that the loon and the lady slippers. Yeah, it's technically the, the pink lady slipper, but lady slipper is fine. You know what? I'm here for the alliteration. Yeah. Come on, Emily. But I, the thing is, I don't know if I was ever taught that or if I just know it. You know? Yeah. Do you know what our state drink is? I don't. Did you say it's milk? Yep, it's milk. <laughs> That's so disappointing because I can't drink milk. <laughs> I, I just, I'm not um, particularly fond of milk. And our we have a state song because all states have a song. And it's called yep. Hail Minnesota. I don't, I don't know the song, but I just love it. And, and you know, Hail they're Minnesota. not talking about like, yay, Minnesota. They're talking about the hail in Minnesota. Probably. And how it comes down and destroys our world. Did you know there's a I, state muffin? There's a state everything. We have a state fossil. Actually, no, I don't think Minnesota has a state fossil because the mm-hmm. Science Museum of Minnesota was doing a whole thing on voting what our state fossil should be. Our state motto is Le Tour de Nord or Star of the North. Oh, I was going to say, is that Nordic for past Ludifisk? <laughs> no, it's Star of the North, which is actually really pretty. <laughs> All right. Matt, I'm surprised that Wisconsin is not uh, doesn't have milk for their state drink, but I guess I don't know they what Wisconsin's would... state anything is. Probably beer. I bet it's cheese whiz. I bet they consider cheese whiz a drink. We have a state soil. 
<laughs> what is our state soil, Kelly? Lester. Lester. <laughs> it became the state soil in 2012. Like all the rest of these are like 19 whatever or later uh, or earlier. And except for ice hockey. Ice hockey was designated our state sport in 2009. Okay, so our band is going to be the Loon and the Lady Slippers, and our first album's going to have a single featuring Lester. We just need to find Lester. Yeah, we'll just find some random person named Lester. Yep. Hey, hey, are you cool being called Lester for like three minutes? Awesome, you're Lester now. Thanks. Also, do you mind rolling around in some dirt? We want you to be authentic. <laughs> Please, you must be very, very dirty. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> All right. I'll actually whine Sorry, about Sorry, who are you whining yeah. about? What is this women's um, history podcast? State things. With the loon and the lady slipper. Uh, we we got to rebrand and do a Minnesota podcast, the loon and the lady slippers. Dory's All about it. Minnesota history. Dory. Dory know. wants to be our Lester. Yeah, she's like, I will be Lester. Rename I am me. Lester. Hear me bark. <laughs> so today I'm going to whine about Julia Bullard or Bullard. Either one. Go with Julia. What's up, Julia? Julia. She was not born in Minnesota, but we'll get there. She was born in High Ridge, Connecticut on May 13th in 1842. She's the daughter of Edward and Angeline. I like that name. Love those names. Right. Julie and her family would move to Minnesota in 1857. So she was 15 years old, teenager, you know. Okay. I moved here when I was 12, so. Exactly, right? It's your formative years. She was, she was incredibly smart, though, because. Oh, not like me. So when they moved here, they moved to Wakota, and then she immediately enrolled in Red Wings Hamlin University <gasps> Red at, Wing. at 15. Red Wing um, is where the boots come from. And this is when Minnesota, I think, is still a territory. And I say that because my next sentence is, Hamlin University is the territory's first institution of higher learning. And I was like, I should probably look up when our state became a state, but I never did, so... You know, it was before 1991. Yes, exactly. Sometime before 1991, Minnesota became a state. You know, sometime in all that time. Yeah. I'm Googling it. Well, she's not wrong. May 11th, 1858. So only shortly, it was still a territory for only a little, about a year longer after they got there. Um, But yeah, so, so Hamlin, which is still there. Um, was uh, one of our, I don't think it's in Red Wing anymore, though. I think it's in the cities. Um, but yeah, it was one of our first institutions of higher learning. In fact, uh, American universities at this time were rare in themselves, and it was even more rare for them to admit women. Because you have to remember that, that we're, we're in 1857, and she got admitted to a university. Probably because Minnesota wasn't a state yet, and they're like, "Yeah, it's fine." And then they became a state, the, and they the were like, "Oh, we're a state any now." Century. The fifties in any century are not particularly woke times. Nope. But she got admitted, um, and she actually came within two terms of graduating. But at age nineteen, um, 
she unfortunately wouldn't graduate, but she would become the first woman in Goodhue County, which is actually just the county above ours, um, to earn the top category of three teaching certificates, which was a first, like literally, it was called a first grade certificate. So first is the top category. Um, And it was issued by the county superintendent of school. So she chose to leave like she got a teaching certificate and she was kind of like yeah that's enough like you know like whatever oh my god my 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 maternal grandfather did something similar um he so he completed his college education he just did not pay his like last tuition payment because Mm -hmm. it was the great depression and there were no jobs and there was no money anyway and he was just like fuck it right (laughs) I'm like, Jesus Christ, Grandpa. Right. I, I can't imagine doing that nowadays. But at the time, it totally made sense. And if she's like, well, I have a job. I have a certificate. Why would I finish right. this? She doesn't need it. Like, yeah. Um, I actually know someone in our day and age that almost graduated with their bachelor's. And then they failed one of their last classes and they never went back to retake it. And I'm like, Why? Like, take a summer class online. Like, literally, you just need a credit. It, it, it's one of those things. It, it, for me, it, it's almost like gambling where you put so much money and effort into something. You're like, I just have to keep going. Yeah. I'm like, I can't even imagine that. Anyways, so she would get her, like, high honors. Like I said, first woman in Goodhue County to earn the top category in three teaching certificates. Um, she'd go on to teach obviously. (laughs) That's what she was doing. Um, And in September of 1866, um, Julia would marry one of her former classmates with the most Minnesotan name, Oli. Oli? His name was Oli Nelson. Oh, Oli Nelson. Yep. For anyone who's not uh, a Midwesterner or Minnesota inductee, there are a series of jokes uh, they're like narrative jokes about this married Norwegian couple, uh, Oli and Oli Lena. And, Lena. Mm-hmm. and actually, that's what I call deer. I call them Olis and Lenas in Minnesota. So, yeah, Oli Nelson <laughs> yep. is the most Minnesotan name. Or Scandinavian name, I guess. But yeah, yeah, I love it. I'm here for it. So Julia would get pregnant right after marriage. That was pretty typical in those times. Unfortunately, um their infant son would die the following year. Oh. Yeah. His name was Cyrus, which is a great name. Oh, I love that name. Um, But he would die just when he was a few months old. And unfortunately for uh, Julia, five months after her son passed away, her husband died. Oh, no! So they were only married like oh my God, a no, year not and a half. Only. Yeah. They were only married like a year and a half, which is really, really sad. So new- that is so much loss so quickly. Right. So and like I, 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 I said this in my last story, you know, cause Marie, one of her, one of her siblings died in infancy, which was not uncommon. And it's like, it may not have been uncommon. Still tragic. But I have a hard time believing that people back then dealt with that kind of grief any better than we do today. You, you know, whether shove you shove it down and move on. Whether you lose a child, you know, in utero, stillbirth, you lose a child in infancy. I I can't imagine they dealt with it any better. No. So um, it's just like it's just the the quantity is compounded. And now she's lost her child 
Cyrus and, and her husband, husband Oli yeah. within a year? Yeah. Oh. So after all that, she was newly widowed. She was only 26 years old, had been a teacher her whole like her whole adult life, other than like the very brief time she was a parent. Um, and she was like, I don't know what to fucking do with myself. So she decided she was like, I'm gonna go to the South and I'm gonna work on educating the newly freed slaves. She's like, I, I, I have all this knowledge. I can do something good with it. I love And she's her. probably like, I need a change of scenery. <laughs> like, yeah. I would. So obviously she's been through, you know, trauma, losing her, her baby and her husband to death. But my, my friends and I, a bunch of us kind of ended long-term relationships all in the same year. Um, and we yeah. were talking about like the post-breakup purchases or the post breakup like like kind of how you behave and maybe some of the the weird things you do or the things you're like oh this person hated eating here so I'm gonna eat here a bunch or like I'm gonna buy this because I don't have to ask them or just those weird things that you don't have to think about another person when you're doing and I love that her post marital situation is I'm gonna go teach newly freed enslaved people uh things i'm gonna teach them and i'm like i bought a couch right okay <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm the type of person that's like i'm gonna dye my hair i'm gonna cut my like those are the things i do when i get out of relationships yeah, um, yeah. no i i bought a couch my friend bought a ring and my other friend got a dog yeah exactly <laughs> that sounds pretty standard all valid ways to deal with loss and a change in your situation yeah so I don't know whether Julia knew this when she chose to do this job. I feel like she had to. But this job, like, you wouldn't think it would be, is dangerous. Like, this is going to be a dangerous job, going to the South and teaching newly freed slaves. So she she got the job through the Freedmen's Bureau, who I mentioned just a few episodes ago when we were talking about the Siamese twins, Millie and Christine, because uh, they kind of screwed her parents over. I'm actually going to talk about them next week. Um, Just like a brief recap, basically. Um, If you want to know more, literally just go like two episodes back. But basically the Freedmen's Bureau was created by Congress to assist newly freed slaves in adjusting to their release following the Civil War. So they would offer education, legal help, stuff like that. Literally, this is like the very... That is the shortest explanation I can give because I'm like, I just talked about them. I do go into a little bit more in, in depth about yeah, what they were. In a the government episode. agency whose purpose was to try and help newly freed black Americans. <laughs> they were great at it. Let's be they honest. were not. Reconstruction. Um, it was difficult. We'll just go it's with that. It's so frustrating because. It could have been, it could have been great. It could have been a great thing. And right. it was like, how can we just rebrand slavery yep. and oppression? Yep. So by 1869, there were about 3,000 schools for the freed slaves, both men and women, um, including the one which Julia would end up at in Texas. Texas. She went to Texas, which I'm like, oh, oh, Texas! Like, I'm like, okay. Those people have to be extra pissed off because they got their slaves for an extra year. And then people were like, no, you actually need to follow this. 
Yeah, no, um, it was the enslaved people in Texas who were the last to be freed on approximately June 19th, which is why we celebrate Juneteenth. Like, Jesus Christ. Also, like, people complain about social media, and I'm like, yeah, but you don't have to wait a year (laughs) to get fucking news that you're no longer enslaved. You don't have to wait a year to figure out the outcome of your own country's fucking war. Right. Um... So just to like, so this is, that's what she decided to do. And just to let you know, like she wasn't treated nicely when she was there. In fact, most Southern white people were angry at their defeat in the civil war. Shocking. And that they got their slaves taken away. Shocking. Like, come on anyways, but they deeply resented not only the fact that their former slaves were getting taught, but that people from the North we're coming to do the teaching. Like, because it like it's a loss of control. The wound, and I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> well, it's a loss of control and they no longer get to control the narrative because the, the Southern, the Southern slaveholders, a huge part of their whole narrative was that, no, no, no. enslaved people like this. They love it. We're their family. Like right. they, like we they give them a place to live. We give them food. Like yeah. we take care of them. And like the daughters of the Confederacy, which if you haven't listened to the hashtag history beyond reproach crossover on the daughters of the Confederacy, please after this episode, go and listen to it. It's it's so good. It's so infuriating. Like but it's, it's so bad, but it's incredibly so eye opening to American history. Um, but yeah, a huge part of the post-American Civil War was the South trying to control the narrative and literally rewrite history. Yeah. So this whole idea of preserving these statues of Confederate generals and stuff, it's like, you're erasing history. It's like, that's literally what you were doing with the statue in the first place. Go fuck yourself. Right. Yeah. So they were deeply resentful. She was often threatened with violence. She was shunned by a lot of the communities she would end up in, but she would actually teach in the South in various States for about 18 years. And she still, she was still living in Minnesota at the time. So she would like, she kind of like went on tours for teaching where she would go for a few months and then come back and then go for a few months and then come back. It's like doctors without borders. Teachers without classrooms. That's essentially what she was doing. Um, but that's not all she was doing. So, so let me let me let me set the stage. So, we're back in Minnesota, and people, okay, it's cold. It's, I'm miserable, and I mean, everything is frozen. It's September, so no, it's it's okay. It's fall. It's pretty nice. Like okay. early September. September 1st, to be exact. September 1st, 1874. People are filing in to the first convention, or not the first convention, to a convention of the fledgling State Temperance Alliance of Minnesota. They expected it to be a fairly quiet gathering in the Red Wing Music Hall. And while the mostly male-dominated assembly was readying for the pre-November election temperance campaign, basically because they want... so. We've talked about the temperance movement a lot, but temperance people who are pro temperance are anti alcohol. That's like very common it was terms. Also, 
it was also a huge part of the early like women's rights movement because women didn't have control over their income or their husbands and when their husbands worked all day and then pissed all of their money away getting drunk came home drunk and then beat the shit out of their wives women were like this sucks maybe you shouldn't be getting drunk all the time and this is the way they exerted that control yep but in this case it was still fairly male dominated um and so yeah they were getting ready to discuss like who to vote for and who like to back in in the campaign for the november election and all this stuff but three women were quietly engineering an insurrection in the background the three women and their names were the loon the lady slipper and lester <laughs> no it was julia nelson or julia bullard nelson our protagonist harriet duncan hobart and elizabeth c hutchinson they very quietly put women's suffrage on the agenda of the temperance movement. <laughs> Just like. Yeah. Just slid it in. Basically. Um, so as it was, as the meeting was convening, the trio of women, the women knew that they had at least one major support in the male delegates. This was convention chairman Phineas Jewell. And so they were like, okay, that's how they got it on the agenda. They were like, you're the chairman. Like, just like write it in at the end. <laughs> Great name. Great Phineas name Jewel, for a hero. Yeah. Um, and he was from Lake City, which is actually quite nearby us. Aw. So toward the end, you know, as everything was kind of wrapping up, Jewel would actually start off this little, I like, I like insurrection. We're going to call it an insurrection. Start off this little thing by giving a speech favoring women's suffrage noting that quote the work of temperance reform could not be prosecuted to to a successful end without the cooperation of the women's votes like he's like hey we can't do this alone like valid women are more for temperance than men are so if we really want temperance to go through we should have the women vote (laughs) that's basically (laughs) what he's saying um the three women had, had composed a very concisely worded 30-word statement before the Temperance Alliance's Platform and Resolutions Committee. This was, it was as follows. That sex should be no barrier to the exercise of the elective franchise, and we hail with pleasure the signs of the times which indicate the approach of women's suffrage. Every girl wants to hear those 30 little words. Right? Um... So this was, you know, like a uh, conference. So there were newspapers here. And one of the newspapers reported the next day that, quote, upon the reading of, you know, this resolution, many of the male delegates rose at once in an earnest to have something to say against it being adopted. These indignant men viewed the proposal as brazen, unwarranted detour from their true purpose. Yep. I actually, the way they, like, obviously women's suffrage is a whole thing in of itself, but the way they tie it into temperance where it's like, Hey, if we want this, we need women on our side and we need them to be able to vote. That's really clever and totally valid. Also, I love like all these, all these dudes like getting all emotional and like right. clutching their pearls. Like, why I never? Uh, Julia had the best response to these men, though. Her response was, "Quote: Sorry that the temperance boat is so small that they can't take women along." 
Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my I'm god. Like, that's fantastic. Even in the 1800s, like that is an incredible clapback. Yeah, it's and basically also, like, how fucking narrow-minded are you? Am I the only one who's like, oh, she's kind of size shaming them, and I'm loving it. Yeah. She's like, there's there's a double entendre there where she's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're all so tiny and pathetic that like you can't handle women being on your side. Yeah. Oh my god. No, she's weaponizing toxic masculinity against them. Yep, it's great. So oh my apparently after like the men did that and she kind of responded, basically it just kind of went to chaos because people were upset and blah, 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 blah. So the discussion of the question of women's suffrage and whether it should be on the temperance movement's agenda or not was like so intense that in order to kind of like calm people down, Phineas Jewell, the guy, the guy that was like in favor of it and putting it on the like ballot asked like the singing troupe that was there for entertainment to like stand up and sing so everyone would just kind of shut the fuck up and he (laughs) what I love about this is that he asked them to sing a Kansas women's suffrage song that was made popular during the civil war called tell my mother that I die happy Okay, that title is really fucked up. It was during like, the Civil that's War. Just, but I, I, okay, can we just say Phineas is a sassy motherfucker and I love him because he's like, okay, we're all getting a little heated, you know, could, could the band just come up and play out the Oscar music? But it's a suffragette anthem. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so one of the women, the three women that kind of started this, uh, Elizabeth Hutchinson was actually like a member of the band that was singing because it was just the Hutchinson family. So it was like her family. Because back then, like a lot of bands were just a family with a lot of kids that went out and toured. Yeah, it's like the, oh, the Partridge, the Partridge family. Right. And But to, to her whole family, like this family of singers, um, to them, like women's support for the women's suffrage came incredibly naturally and actually um originally the Hutchinson family was from New Hampshire and then they moved to Minnesota to McLeod County and there is a village called New Hampshire in Minnesota and it's named after that family but but basically um from the from the outset the, the entire family was like no like voting privileges shouldn't be restricted to women it it shouldn't matter so, like, that's why they were like, yeah, of course we'll sing. And, of course, we'll sing a women's suffrage song. Like, fuck yeah. Like, they were all for it, which I love. Like, I the, love that the, it The wasn't... dogs are joining in by singing the song of their people, which is also a women's suffrage song, believe it or not. I, I believe it. Tell my mother Jeez, I die happy. Please, come on. Tell your mama you died happy. Let's do this. Come here. Yeah. They know the words. <laughs> that's funny. Look at this little motherfucker. God, I love him so much. <laughs> God, I love him so much. And the Maxwell. So cute. So many, so many cheese. Okay. So af- that was kind of Julia's first day in the spotlight in the su- for the suffrage movement. She'd already been on the temperance band for a while, but, you know. So... She was so aggressive in her efforts to compel the, the, the 1874 State Temperance Alliance of Minnesota to address women's suffrage that she, like, kept 
hounding people again and again. And it was kind of great. And she started small. She started in Minnesota and she actually would eventually like become a fairly national figure in the women's suffrage movement. Um, And she and her view and herself kind of became emblematic of women's suffrage during this time. Um, And she was a big fight in Minnesota's half century long struggle to win the voting right for women. Half century. God, I I, I feel like when we talk about women's suffrage, a lot of it centers on the, you know, the last decade or so, you know, the everything leading up to the 19th Amendment. But this was going on for so fucking long. Right. And it was and it was a state by state thing for a very long time before it became the 19th Amendment. Right. So, um, some people like wonder why she was like one of the three women that kind of kicked it off at the the other movement, and it's actually because um, she had already kind of caused a little commotion with women's suffrage in Minnesota in particular, because she or she is believed to be have organized the Minnesota's first debate on women's suffrage almost five years prior. To that like day in Red Wing, it was staged in 1869 at the Good Templars Hall, and uh, basically she was just like, "Let's ignore all these Victorian era strictures, um, you know, on stuff, and let's let's just do shit." Basically, and she she's known to have made major contributions to three of America's most important social and political movements. We've talked about two women's actually three. We've we've mentioned all three: women's suffrage, temperance, and civil rights for African Americans. Good. Po- okay. Yeah. No. For sure. I was like, wait, what's the third? I we've gotten so much in the suffrage thing where I was like, oh my god, I totally forgot that she was it's, traveling to Texas. Yeah, it's so interesting. Freed Black Americans. It's so interesting, like the way everything is written. It's it's written very similar to how I wrote my notes. That basically, like, oh yeah, she was teaching slaves in the or newly freed slaves in the South, but also all this other stuff. Like that was like the fact that she's doing that is like the background noise to everything else. Yeah, yeah. So she kept making noise in the women's suffrage movement. Uh, there isn't like a ton talking about what she did between 1874 and 1881 other than she was like making noise there wasn't a lot of like specific like oh she was here and she was here she was also still teaching because she taught up until um 1888 throughout the south so she's still teaching (laughs) um but on september 20 what sorry sorry really quick i want to put that in perspective the american civil war ended in like what 1865 Mm -hmm. so this is 20 plus years after yep and, and she's she, still she doing started, the lord's work she started teaching in 69 and she taught until 88 holy shit yeah so she was there for a while or like oh on my and god off for a while you know so in 1881 on top of the temperance because she was still in the, in the temperance movement um so on top of that and all the teaching uh, Julia and 13 other women would launch the Minnesota Women's Suffrage Association, or the MWSA, during their women's temperance meeting. 
So like during the women's temperance meeting, they were like, no, okay. Like we need, we need a separate committee for this guys. Like this one's the anti-alcohol. This is the votes for women. We can be together, but separate. (laughs) But like, so they, they launched, um, that. And in the first year after they launched, they started with 14 women when they kicked off within the first year, they had a membership of 124 and then they doubled that the second year. So like, oh my God, women want to vote. Believe it or not, adult women want autonomy and control over their life and, you know, the, their country and the choices that are made. Right. So as I said um, earlier, uh, Julia would retire from teaching in about 1888, but wouldn't sit idle for very long because in 1890, she was elected president of the Minnesota Women's Suffrage Association uh, and she would be president for six years. So not not like a one-term thing. She was president for six years. That's just what she's doing in her retirement. Yeah. Uh, and she would... Keep busy. Yeah. As president, she would travel nationwide as a paid lecturer for the National Women's Suffrage Association. So she's branched now from Minnesota. Um And she actually went and spoke to the U.S. House of Representatives Judiciary Committee hearing on women's suffrage as well, stating, quote, if I am capable of preparing citizens, I am capable of possessing the rights of a citizen myself. I ask you to remove the barriers which restrain women from equal opportunities and privileges with men. Basically, she's like, you're having me go and teach people how to be citizens, but you're not letting me be one. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, those who can't teach? Right. No, that's not how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so mad at this. Um, she would also go on to work as superintendent for the state temperance movement and its and be its vice president, all while still being president of the suffrage association, which is insane. She also would handle editing the group's newspaper, which was called the Minnesota White Ribboner. Wait, the Minnesota what? White Ribboner. Well, white ribbons were a part of like the the colors. Okay. I I was like, what's a ribboner? To ribbon? Oh, no. It's literally a ribbon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is insane. Like, she's just doing... All the fucking things, basically. The dogs are barking. Um, so while she was president, kind of nearing the end of her term, Julia would ally with um, the Suffrages Association's Ign- Ignatius Donnelly. That's a name. In 1893, Donnelly is a is not well known to me, but apparently a well known Minnesota politician, male, I believe. Yeah, Ignatius sounds like a male name, and he's all he's also known um, as a really good speaker, and he believed in women's rights to vote. So, uh, Julia Donnelly and a few other allies actually would go to the Minnesota Senate and persuade them to consider a suffrage amendment to the to the Minnesota Constitution in 1893. The vote was a 32 to 19 margin, and the Senate would vote to drop the wor- word male from voting requirements. But, Damn right they did. 
no, 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 but, shut up. We're done. There's no but. But. The bill would not become become a law because the House, under time constraints, just kind of ignored it and didn't vote on it. Gotta love politics. Them. The, and so they would continue bringing this amendment before all future legislations without success until it finally like became a national thing. I'm like, they were so fucking close. All they needed to do was be like, hey, this one, this bill, yes or no? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up? Okay, no mail. <laughs> you know, it also reminds me, like, Minnesota, I, I feel like it's Tauri as a very liberal state, but even always. as I was talking about with some of my, you know, statistics in my story, we have a lot of issues. We have a lot of really deep-seated <laughs> issues and I was actually like living in Minnesota. I was shocked that we did not legalize same-sex marriage be- before it became Federal. nationally legal. Yeah, we were trying. I'm like, come we're on, like, Minnesota. We're one of those states that tries things and we're like, we should do this. And then it gets stopped somewhere in the fucking process. Yeah, no, it's it's very frustrating because, you know, um, I would argue our city is very is pretty liberal. Uh, the the Twin Cities is very liberal. Duluth, like these high population areas, but we're all surrounded by these very rural areas that tend to be very conservative, and yeah. so it's very much this constant battle. You know, I mean, we didn't even get edibles legalized here. Until a bunch of Republicans didn't do their homework yeah, until they, and voted until they for it. And then they were like, wait, I wait, I want that. a do-over. Yeah, I still love that. So, Oh, my God. That is like my favorite story in the world. I know. Like, Republicans and then they're like, no, 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 JK, we want a do-over. It's like, I'm like no, you don't I'm get sorry. one. I didn't get a do-over when I didn't do my homework in school. Fuck you. Right. Exactly. Um. So... In her still incredibly busy retirement, um, Julia would uh, buy a farm. She would call it the Belvedere Farms. It's uh, just south of Red Wing. And after a while, like, she was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm older. Like, I'm still super fucking busy. Like, as much as I want to run this farm, I can't do it on my own kind of a thing. So she would recruit 21-year-old Jeremiah Patterson, who was a freed slave and a former student of hers. Oh. Yeah, to help run the farm. And he would actually become a pretty integrated part of the community with Julia's help, which was kind of uncommon for the time. Yeah. Um, he would actually go on to marry Verna Gaylord, and they would move together in Red Wing. Um. Patterson would still help Julia at her farm. And together, uh, in 1897, Julia and Jeremiah would open the Equal Rights Meat Market. So this was a black-white business partnership, and it was super rare in Minnesota at the time. And it would eventually prove unsuccessful, but, like, it, I don't think it was necessarily because... I mean, it probably was, knowing... It, it was racism. But, like... It wasn't each, any of them individually. It wasn't like the two of them that had a falling out. The business just wasn't successful. Yeah. But like Patterson didn't, like Jeremiah didn't get chased out of town and him and his children continued to live in Red Wings and stay friends with Julia. Like that was fine. The business wasn't successful, but they did it. They did the thing, which I still think is super cool. I love it's one of her former students. 
Yeah. Because I, I was just thinking, like, do you ever hear about those teachers that have such an impact where all their students get together and tell stories? I'm like, I want to hear from Julia's students. Right. But so, they're probably all dead now. Probably. Because time. Yeah. So as the women's suffrage movement, like, became more of a thing, you know, uh, in 1901, Susan B. Anthony and Ida Husted Harper, both, like, really big names in the suffrage community, <laughs> um, would go on to call Nelson or Julia, quote, the rock on which the effort for women's suffrage has been founded in this state, meaning Minnesota. Like, they were like, yeah, she's the reason suffrage is a thing in Minnesota. Oh, my God. Yeah. She's like, our, okay, we were talking about, like, state this and that. She's like our state suffragist. Basically. So Aww. Julia would continue her demanding work as much as she could, but by the winter of 1912, at 71 years old, she was feeling the effects of bronchitis that she had carried with her for years. In 1913, her physician suggested a long rest in Florida, and she would follow his advice. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm just imagining yeah. like all the retirees going to Florida. It's like, oh, this has been going on forever, hasn't it? So here's my favorite thing about um, Julia going to like rest in Florida. Uh, she went to Florida via D.C. so that she could stop by the Women's Suffrage Convention on her way. She will not quit. No, she won't. Actually, that, that's... She cannot yeah. and will not. Um, that's actually what I was going to say. And Julia could not resist working. So she basically went to... So she went to the Women's Suffrage Convention, which was in 1913. Kind of chilled in Florida for a little bit. And then kind of got bored and couldn't resist working. And by fall of 1914, was on a train tour of no North Dakota working on the women's voting rights again. Yeah. I wish, I wish I had that kind of drive. I wish I had that kind of like, mm, but man, depression really kicks you in the nads. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, unfortunately, this would weaken her further and she would die of pneumonia on December 24th, 1914. Christmas Eve! Yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, and after her, after her passing, a newspaper article reported, quote, she was the last of the grand old women of suffrage. Cause she was like, yes, we have all those big names in suffrage, but like, she was one of the people that were doing it before they were doing, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, she, she was kind of, um, like the old guard. Almost. Exactly. So yeah, that's, that's Julia. And I mean, obviously her legacy or legacy is that. She really just like not only paved the way for suffrage, particularly in Minnesota, but like helped with the temperance movement, which is kind of meh. But like she also was in the South when being in the South was kind of dangerous for the for the work that she was doing. One, she was from the North and two, she was teaching freed slaves things, which the Southerners did not like. Um, and she was doing all of that while still trying to get like the women's right to vote in Minnesota. Like, so she was like, okay, while I'm here, I'm going to piss off people. And while I'm down here, I'm also going to piss off people. <laughs> She's like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to, I'm going to teach people because they deserve to be taught. And I'm going to try to get people to pull their heads out of their asses and give women the right to vote because they deserve it. She had a very diversified portfolio of pissing people off who deserve to be pissed right. off. She's like, no, I'm I'm just working for people people's rights. Yeah. That's what it is. She's just like, nope. 
God, that that's incredible. Do, do we know like where she's buried or anything like that? Let me look it up again. I okay. think she's buried in Minnesota, but I'm not a hundred. Because I would sure. love to know if we can visit her. My dogs are really mad about something. They're they're very mad that Julia died before the 19th Amendment got passed. You know, right? Bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, no. really, it's like the line from Hamilton. It, it, it's all about planting seeds in a garden you may never get to see grow. And she was a part of that. All right. She is buried in Oakwood Cemetery in Red Wing. Oh, we take could totally a trip. go there. Yep. <laughs> Girls trip. Oli's There's a really good chocolate there, shop in so Red you know. Wing too that we can we can jam out to. So I believe Oli and Cyrus are also buried there. Oh, I want to visit Oli and Cyrus. I want to leave flowers. Yeah, we should we should definitely like do that on a weekend. That would be really nice. Red Wing is really beautiful. It's right on the Mississippi River and everything. Yeah. No, I mean, if you're in Minnesota and you're looking for like those small town visits, Red Wing is a good place. It's home to Red Wing Shoes. um, And they have like a really cool museum. It's a really beautiful downtown. They've got the the cliffs, the hiking, um, lots of little shops. I think they have like the Nordic shop or like, no, no, no. It's the Oofta shop. Nice. (laughs) You can get all your Scandahoovian swag there's also a casino technically oh, that's it's right, right treasure outs- island it's right outside of red wing but yeah it's, treasure it's, island resort and casino but yeah i also just love that like when she needed help like on her farm she was like hey i'm gonna recruit a former student of mine and like ingratiate him into the community i i just well, like love that and she almost served as like an ambassador, like she's vouching for him. Like, hey, I know y'all are, you know, still have like your racist issues, but oh, I'm telling you he's cool. So y'all yeah. better be cool. One thing I didn't mention um, is that when Jeremiah, the, the pupil, got married, it was an interracial. It was an interracial marriage. So that was a whole thing, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's huge for the time. That's yeah. We can also actually visit Jeremiah and his like wife and their family because they're buried in the same cemetery. Shut up! Are you serious? Yeah. Okay, we're gonna buy so many flowers. Right. We're There's a buy, Target in Red Wing. We're hitting up Target. We're just gonna like. We're hitting up Target. We're getting some flowers, and we are just gonna go like grave hopping. We're gonna go on a grave crawl. Yeah. Oh, and I, I. I said the the equal rights meat market didn't work, but they were open for a few years before they like shut down. It wasn't like, oh, we're open. Just kidding. We're closed. But like I the reason I included it is like, yeah, it didn't work. But like, what a great way to show not only like um, African-Americans what they can do, but like also women just to be like, hey, look, we can open a business. We can run a business and we can do it together. Right. That's amazing. Max is perched on my shoulder like a parrot now. I see that. Yes. He's he's incredible. So Emily, what are you thankful for? Damn you. You're too busy with your Max parrot. Oh my God, you're the worst. Um 
Okay. It's been a minute since we've talked about our own personal thankfulnesses. Um, I mean, I guess I'm just thankful for my, my home, my pets. Um, I celebrated my birthday with a, with a little party and it was, it was one of those things where like, I didn't have enough seating for everyone because <laughs> I, I have a small house and it's just me and the, and the animals. So I don't really ever have to think about that, but being able to look around a room at all the people who are like, we love you and we want to celebrate you is a really wonderful, it was a wonderful moment where it's like, I'm embarrassed. I don't have enough chairs, but it's also a really great feeling to know. I have so many friends that like, I don't have enough chairs. I don't think anyone cared. I, I found some cushions. We uh, we went old school with it sitting on the floor. Uh, we were watching Disney movies and Anastasia uh, and people were singing along and quoting the movies. And I'm like, this is my family. Yeah, it was great. It was a lot of it fun. It was awesome. Yeah, no, I and it was just it was really wonderful. It's it's kind of one of those moments where you have that. That like recognition, like, oh, I have all these really wonderful people in my life who are are here for me and want to celebrate me. And yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. By the way, it was also Kelly's birthday yesterday. So if you didn't wish her a happy birthday on social media, you're a terrible person. <laughs> Unless Jeez. you go and wish her a happy birthday right now. Judge you. I like birthday wishes. No. Um, and that's really what I'm thankful for too is like I had a lot of people reach out to me and like even just beyond like the typical happy birthday, like say other like a, a bunch of my coworkers were like, Oh, we're so glad you're here and like all this stuff. And it just yeah, it was not that I like look for approval or anything like that, but just like just yeah, feeling the love from like all 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 the different versions of people reaching out to me on like a things both on social media and things not on social media. Like that was really, really nice. And it just, it was good. It made, it made my week a little better. It's been a weird week. Yeah. It's like all these people in different areas of your life are recognizing you and celebrating you. Right. And being like, Hey, I'm glad you're here. Yeah. It's like, Oh, people in my professional world love and appreciate me and people in my family love and appreciate me and people in my podcast circle and my friends circle and my, college and high, you know, it's like all these different circles that you've intersected with all these people are coming forward and just being like, by the way, we love you. Yeah. Nice. I love you. I love you too. Happy birthday. Thank you. You're old like me now. I am. I know I was joking. I got up when I got up yesterday, I like looked at my husband. Like, I'm so old now. And he's like, you've been old for a while. I'm like, shut up. You're older than I am. Yeah, my my back has been bothering me and I'm just like, you know, if this wasn't happening since I was 13 years old, I'd blame it on my age. Yeah, that's that's me and my knees. Yeah, like, oh, my knees. And I'm like, no, this has been this is this has just been a thing for a while. This is just life now. This is just who I am. Yeah, my back. My back pain is basically part of my personality at this point. Well, thank you so much for listening to our very special Minnesota Mavens four-year anniversary remote recording animal-involved episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at Pod, where we have the GoFundMe for Caitlin posted. We have the link to that. Seriously, I, I can't encourage you enough. Even A dollar. Like, just donate whatever you can. Do we have it on Twitter, too? No, because I gave up on Twitter. Okay. I hate Twitter. I'm not going to talk about our Twitter then. We have a Twitter, but we're done with it.
But we do have a website. It's whiningaboutherstory.com. I'm pretty sure there's a link to our Twitter if you really want to go find it. Um, but yeah, it has links to all of our social media everywhere you can listen to us and links to all of our sweet merch, which we will totally be coming out with a Loon and the Lady Slipper merch because... Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, and yeah, so and you can rate us five stars wherever you listen and leave us some nice reviews. Do it, do it for Women's History Month. Do it. The, the, this is your moment Give to be an ally. Give us more warm, fuzzy feelings. Yeah, this is your time to be an ally. Leave a five-star review on a women's history podcast where two besties of the breasties from Minnesota whine about women from history that you probably haven't heard of. Whatever podcast, you know, might fit into that category. Yeah, Just leave that's a super broad category. So broad. Shockingly broad. <laughs> two broads. Two broads. <laughs> two broads. See, I can make stupid puns too, Emily. I love it. And something I've loved about doing this podcast is just how I've slowly like inducted you into my cult of punniness where Kelly's puns are like, they're better than mine. They're worse than mine in all the best ways. Like Kelly is right up there with me. Yeah. I have become one with the puns. One with the pun. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day, y'all. Bye. Bye. <laughs>